1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history, like braids, ants and garlic.
0: Mm. Do you know, I would love to do the history of garlic. Mm. Uh, I love garlic and I and I know I... nothing about its, its historical uh, past. I know nothing about it historically is what I mean. Can we do snails as well? Because I had some snails the other day, uh, and they were very much cooked
1: in a lot of uh, garlicky butter. (laughs) And so we could do snails and garlic.
0: We did do snails. Oh, have we? (laughs) We did do we did do snails. Snails, snails be literary snails. It was very absolutely fascinating. Really memorable, Sam. (laughs) Or we could do braces, traces, and races. Cases, laces and faces. We have, in fact, done faces. But I had a fascinating conversation with a colleague in art and design at the University of Plymouth this week. And he was telling me about this amazing story about pasties. And I'm not going to divulge it here because I'm going to suggest, Sam Willis, that we do a history of pasties. This is a fascinating study about somebody who... As much as I can remember, I've asked him to send me, furnish me with more details so that I can talk about it in a really animated and knowledgeable way. But it was a, somebody who was a master pasty maker died, and they saved one of his last pasties, and it has been kept in fridges over the last four years, shuttled between, you know, fridge to fridge to fridge to keep it sort of preserved. And now they have just done a um, 3D printed scan of it to keep it alive so it's a it's a historical artifact for the family isn't that amazing (laughs) it's very good I do do know that the origins of the pasty are contested
1: yes that much I that much I do know well we could do Um, are you you up for are you up for a pasty history absolutely absolutely I think a lot of people will be coming to the southwest in this summer so um, you'll all want to know about what you're eating and why it's interesting the history of the portable snack it's
0: got It's surely going to be a chapter within that as well it is it is, I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will be. We should also do ice creams, buckets and spades, surfboards. Yeah, yeah. It's, I'm feeling we're down here in the in lovely sunny Devon. Uh the beaches are gorgeous. Uh this is not a this is not a, a sponsorship deal for the Devon Marketing Board. We just live here and love it. Uh, but lot as Sam yeah. says, lots of people are gonna be coming down here. So I think we should have some summary, beachy type themes. But for the moment well, cool. we will be following Can we do the
1: footsteps. Can we do footsteps? I was walking on the beach just the other day and someone I was following in the path of someone's footsteps and um, that would be a really interesting one. Well
0: next next week let's do footsteps and pasties. Okay. Dice. I think footsteps is brilliant. Mm-hmm. Lovely foot... Oh, gosh, yes. There's all sorts of Roman stuff about footsteps. Like foot yeah. p- footprints and yeah. walking uh- and perambulation and... Oh, brilliant. However... <laughs> Go on, are you, are you, are you, are you go on, no, go on, to, no, go, no, go, no, go, no, 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 no. I've lo- we've lost the link in our minds, but we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, as always, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, that the history of farewells is in fact all about the history of separation, World War One in the trenches, letters to loved ones thrown from a train in a matchbox, Love Letters to the Dead in 16th Century Korea. It's all so all about the unexpected history of ancient tombs, travel and shipwrecks. Did you know that? Mm. Mm, no. Of course you did. I,
1: apparently I forget everything <laughs> I <Yes>. do.
0: <laughs> the entire back catalogue, 350 or so episodes, has just been erased from your long-term memory. Or did you know that the history of corpses, and this is one of my favourite recent uh, episode, is in fact all about the eccentric Cornish landowner, Sir James Tilly, who demanded that upon his death, his body should be tied to a chair facing the River Tamar in an all-purpose built mausoleum, a Pentilly Castle. And he was to be fed every day. It's also all about Viking corpse doors and mortuary practices related to doors. It's about superstitions to do with bleeding corpses. It's also about sixteenth and seventeenth century burial practices, exhumation, posthumous execution, and corpses on the move via Thomas Cromwell. It's about the deathbed, body farms, and swamp men. Sam, <laughs> I think that was a. I think, I think that was a Halloween one, Sam Willis. Yeah. Good,
1: good. Um, I want to do snakes as well, but that's a separate topic. You're probably wondering wondering, uh, who, who my fellow presenter is. Let me just say, if history were a sad street, a British street piled with litter in something like the Winter of Discontent in 1979, this man would be the street cleaner, the party planner, the bunter, the trestle tabler, the scone baker, the fate maker. He would cleanse history itself of bin juice and rats whilst carefully studying the development and cultural significance of said bin juice and rats to make sure that History Street was fit for a parade of the past. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at
0: Plymouth University. He is James Daybell. Hello, James. <laughs> Sam, I know I say that that, that every time you do these, that that was the best. This really emphatically was the best. There was even, there was even some sort of poetic rhyming in there. It was it was. Amazing. I, I love the idea that I'm a dustman as well. Um, And that that history history is really a sort of sweeping through the garbage of the past, which in a lot of ways it is. However, you may well be wondering, who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this very episode? Well, let's just say that if he were a street party-related historian, he'd be organising said street party. And having been lucky enough to attend such spectacular occasions, I can only attest his organisational prowess. It's historic. His generosity and bonhomie, something out of the past, and his sum- the sumptuousness of his spread is worthy of legend. No limp cucumber sandwiches of the historical world here, I'll have you know. It's the historical famous adventurer himself, Dr Sam Willis. Hello, everyone. Um, uh, wonderful. We're doing
1: street parties.
0: I have, uh,
1: in spite of the introduction from James, never organised a street party. Um, but we are doing it because we've been inspired. This is part one of two parts, I should say. We're doing street parties today. We're doing bunting as well. That's coming up because all of the streets in the UK, uh, if you're listening in America or Australia, or wherever you might be, uh, all of the streets in the UK have been covered in small triangles of flags, which is something the British do, uh, particularly so where there's anything royal to celebrate. And um, with the Queen's Jubilee happening very recently, uh, the whole country has become bedecked With uh, bunting and everyone has been having amazing street parties. Uh, Crowds have thronged the sides of the streets. In fact, they were doing so so much the other week. I took my son up to the theatre. Went up to London, um, and we we stupidly chose to go to a theatre just off um, Trafalgar Square, where all of the UK was standing around to watch the fake queen go past in her carriage. So it was um, it was quite stressful. Going against the grain of it of the the biggest street party in the UK became quite stressful on that day. However, that's why we are doing street parties and bunting. Um, James,
0: I, I suspect you went to a street party. You're a I, street d- I was party about here. to ask you did you did you attend a street party? It sounds I it sounds like know. you you're allergic to street parties. I'm allergic to street
1: parties, but I I suppose I did attend one in that I was in London and it was quite fun once we'd left the theatre and we'd actually got there on
0: time. As you can imagine, I embraced street parties with great sort of gusto. In fact, I went to two. One was a sort of... (laughs) One was a street party, a sort of formal street party, Topsham's Long Table, which if you've never been, this is an almost annual thing. It was delayed during lockdown, so they couldn't have it. But the streets of the village, the beautiful village... Uh, along the banks of the River X, near the estuary, there um, uh, they are just lined with trestle tables, and everyone comes out uh, with all their sort of fancy wares. There are tablecloths everywhere. There there is bunting. There's balloons. There's ornate china on certain tables. Uh, yeah. On our table, we had a an ice box with a bottle of champagne in it. The ice box was in the shape of a top hat which was extraordinary. So I had fantastic time there, but also uh, attended a, a picnic in the park, uh, which is sort of a street party, but not a street party. It's a sort of an opportunity to sit in a deck chair uh, and and consume uh, champagne uh, from three <laughs> o'clock in the afternoon. The most extraordinary thing about this was that the, the conversation was all about this two million pound house that had just been sold, uh, that was formerly the public toilets of the park. Uh, So people were sort of looking at it, just sort of wondering... You know why on earth are these people living in what were the public toilets of the park, and actually now the people who go to the park have been deprived of public conveniences I do it? Which D- is bizarre this? i shouldn't say because i'm sure oh, okay. i'm sure it would i 'm sure it would shame the people who have who mm. were sitting behind a blanket as all these sort of party revellers were outside their two million pound house uh pointing at them, going, "Why are those people living in a former public toilet?" Having paid two million pounds, so I don't want Very to say good. I don't want to say where it is, where it was, but I, I had a really good time during um, during the street parties, and this belatedly is why we were going to talk about the history of street parties because in Britain we do have something of a history of street parties, not just bunting, but history of street parties which stretches all the way back probably to 1919 and the peace parties after the signing of the Treaty of Versailles after the First World War, and then there's a whole interesting history of street parties that really get connected to royalty and celebration their opportunities of of communities coming together Uh, there's a really interesting uh, visual and oral history of these occasions there's an interesting food history of them but I also want to go to block parties in the US uh, in particular to Madison Wisconsin and a famous block party in 1969 uh, in that was rebelling against the... or protesting against the Vietnam War. So that's where I'm going to go on my little sojourn today. Mm, very good. Let
1: me... I'm going to start um, by by talking about quite an important word in the phrase street party, which, of course, is street. Mm. Uh, so you, you can't have a street party unless you've got a street. And that is more interesting and more significant than you might think. So, I mean... I suppose there's a definition... I mean, if you have a kind of a fantasy vision of what a British street party would be, to me, you've got a tarmac road, you've got a couple of pavements, you've got maybe lines of terraced houses, and then, as you described in Topsham, you've got tables out there and lots of food and stuff. But um, the the requirement, I think, is that you have um, essentially lines of housing. And so it is really linked with the development of terraced housing in the uk uh, which is uh, all to do with the clearing of slums at the end of the 19th and early uh, first quarter of the 20th century so when you're looking at lines of straight lines of houses you've got to kind of imagine what was there before and why it was removed and I suppose if you think about something like the East End of London, where there would have been endless warrens of little um little not um, alleyways rather than broad open streets which can accommodate large numbers of people, um, you realize how uh urbanization the development of towns and developments of cities is crucial to street parties It's also of course linked with war and it's linked with confidence. Um, And what got me thinking about this were the terrible pictures coming in from Ukraine. So you can only have a street party if you physically got a street, i.e. your street has not been destroyed. Um, And certainly the Russians are destroying a great deal of streets in the Ukraine at the minute. And obviously this applies to the Second World War, where it's very difficult to have a street party just after the Blitz in certain parts of London, certain parts of the UK, Uh, certainly in Exeter, where I live, um, where the middle of the town was completely flattened, um, destroying essentially the high street. Not very many Um, uh, uh, of of the uh, the traditional uh, buildings and shops were left after the war. And that really applies to Plymouth as well, because it was near the naval base. Um, So if you go and look at those towns now, then both have got huge modern centres. And those modern centres are there because they were bombed by the Germans, because those streets were destroyed. Um, So uh, it's really interesting just thinking about the you've got to be confident. You've got to feel safe that you're not going to get bombed by a howitzer from someone 20 miles away. Now, this is all also our understanding of street parties and how they've developed is linked with the early history of people studying. Street parties, which has its own history. It's a, a very clearly defined thing. So, after 1945, there are a couple of really important people here Judith Stephen and her husband Nigel Stevenson, and they spent a bit of time in Bethnal Green in London's East End. They lived there, I moved there in 1945 after the war. They were historians, uh, anthropologists, uh, Nigel himself, particularly, was a photographer. And this is at the same time where something called mass observation has been running for about 30 years it's a big government funded um, uh, social study program and it's still going now it was revived about 1990 or so Uh, and that has told us a huge amount of detail about um, how people went about their daily lives for the very first time and the uh, the photographs taken by Nigel are, are wonderful The the main institute, though, that really started studying street parties was the Institute of Community Studies. It was founded in 1953 and they were particularly interested in street parties. So 1953. And this is all to do with the Queen's coronation. It comes back to what we're talking about now. We've got her jubilee. But um, 1953, you suddenly have uh, uh, mass street parties and they really are a relatively recent Um, ritual. There are a few street parties um, to celebrate the golden jubilee of Queen Victoria in 1887, a few after the First World War, but they only really properly become uh, um, officially recognised or sanctioned as a phenomenon, I suppose, um, with George VI coronation in 1937. Um, And then There are lots of interesting relationships with the police. You have to get involved, you have to guarantee the safety of people who are crowding on the streets. You've suddenly got the the rise in the introduction of barriers, which is a new thing. So when I was up in London, all of the streets were barricaded off. They were barriered. And that's all to do with social control and the way that the police organise mass demonstrations and also mass celebrations. So a little bit of thought there, James, just to point out that um, there is a really uh, a fascinating history of historians studying street parties. And you can do no worse than looking at the photographs of Nigel Henderson from Bethnal Green
0: in the east end of London. Oh, I love that, Sam. And it connects to what I was going to talk about. One of the things that I was going to talk about, because I think one of the things that really keeps history alive is it's not just professional historians like us, uh, but it's also these community historians so it's people who are themselves genuinely public historians and there was a brilliant project that I came across uh, which goes under the the website uh, streetparty.org.uk and this was a project uh, which was archived in 2013 and it was an attempt to gather as much information oral history images videos of memories of street parties Throughout the 20th and into the 21st century, you know, um, and particularly with the with the sort of um, the sort of royal celebrations in the the early 20th century, but it's got it's got a collection of photographs, it's got a collection of YouTube videos, it's got some oral history records, and it's a great place to go and start looking at the visual evidence, in particular. Uh, and it goes back to the nineteen nineteen peace teas for children after the First World War. This is a period when a lot of children were orphaned, partly because parents parents were killed, but also remember the Spanish flu wiped a lot of people out um, they There are uh, pictures for, photographs from um, from London. On the 30th of August 1919, uh, in Fulham, um, families all sort of getting around, flags and bunting, and tables and food. Um, and then we get to the Silver Jubilee of. George V, there is evidence of that. Um, the coronation of George VI as well. Uh, VE Day and VJ Day uh, after the Second World War. There are there are videos of that and, and testimony of that. The Festival of Britain in 1951. The Queen's coronation, coronation of Queen Elizabeth II in 1953. Um, uh, the Silver Jubilee. And so it goes on and on and on. And one of the best... Um, records that i came across uh, that is archived in this project are the memories of one particular woman who has experienced a whole series of street parties over her long life she's interviewed here when she's 89 so i think she, this is about 2011 a woman called betty ward who they describe her as a street party veteran and for 70 years she's held street parties in kibworth uh, harcourt uh, which is a village in leicestershire and she's lived there in the same place on the same road all her life and she started organizing street parties in 1937 and she was at the time she was interviewed for this she was planning uh, a street party in 2012 and what's great about this, what's great about oral history is that you hear the thoughts of ordinary people. It captures their thoughts and their experiences of the past. Carrying on these traditions, she she says, is important. People in Britain are not very neighbourly anymore. They tend to come and go, so doing things like this helps get us together. The first one I remember was in 1937 for George VI's coronation when I was 15 Everyone flew the flag and ate jellies topped with cream from my family's cows. Then we had a sports day in General Jack's Field at the end of the road. I beat all the boys in the sack race. VE Day in 1945 was fantastic. We brought out whatever food we had. We danced in the streets till the early hours. Everyone was jubilant and everything was impromptu. In 1953, I organised the festivities for Queen Elizabeth's coronation, including a fancy dress parade, a glamorous grandma's contest and a pram race, which involved nannies, men dressed in nursemaids' uniforms, you're going to love this, Sam, pushing babies, women dressed in bibs and bonnets around two villages, and here you are, they had to stop and drink half a pint at each of the nearby pubs. So I like that idea, a sort of street party that has a a sort of nannies and babies uh, pram pub crawl. Um, In 1977, she goes on, Kibworth continued its tradition for the Queen's Silver Jubilee, in 1981 for Charles and Diana's wedding, and in 2002 for the Queen's Golden Jubilee. In 2011 to mark the marriage of William and Kate I helped the Coach and Horses pub hold a street party for over 500 people. We had miles of bunting and a mammoth sing-song with old favourites like knees up mother brown. We all got rather tiddly, uh, she says. Isn't that a sort of wonderful sort of capturing of a lifetime of of street parties? But there's so many yep. ways in which you can you can think about street parties. You can think about them in terms of food. So you can think about them if you go from 1919 when rationing is still there through to the end of the Second World War and food is quite tight. You know, the kinds of things people are are eating tend to be you know, relatively simple, they're things that are scratched together, and then as you get to 1953, and we're thinking about the Queen, Queen Elizabeth II's coronation, things are getting a little more elaborate, and this is when we have the invention of coronation chicken, um, which is invented at this, at this this period which is a little like sort of cold curry mayonnaise um, and there survives a celebration dinner menu coronation dinner menu from the goring hotel uh, which is just round the corner from buckingham palace on the 2nd of june 1953 which is the most amazing one two three four five six seven course uh, meal starting off with salmon fumé uh, consommé, fillet of sole, tournée des royales Blanc de Poulet, Elizabeth salad, uh, asparagus, um, and then parfait and uh, Windsor strawberries with petit fours. I think I'd have quite liked to have gone to that meal meal myself. But then think about how think about how um, it's weird the French kind of fetishism of that. It is, isn't Why it?
1: What's going on there? Cordon bleu. It's, um, Cordon bleu. It, yeah, but, yeah, it's a real kind of 1950s thing that the the, the French. The, the 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 peak of
0: of of um culinary skill or sophistication it just has to be french i will i will make myself super unpopular now uh but i would i would say that british cuisine has only really hit its stride in the last two decades you know post post um you know Gordon Ramsay generation that sort of um and, and people will kill me for that but actually when i the the kind of food that was available to go out when i was growing up was atrocious in comparison to the kind of food that you get in france uh, or italy and so i i think there i think that's why you know we've had a real sort of um discovery of of homegrown cuisine here that i think rivals any sort of cuisine uh, in the world uh, and you think of all the brilliant, talented chefs that you've got nowadays. The 1950s, I think, you know, eating somewhere like at the Goring ho- to- Hotel, you know, fine. And but but you know, you've got sort of you know uh, trained French chefs, you know, mm. and, and that sort of Cordon Bleu was the was the the thing. And and now I think we've got a a sort of range of different. Uh, styles of cooking you didn't want to send me off down this sort of culinary route but a range of sort of styles of cooking much more um, cosmopolitan world foods fusion cooking different styles and all I was going to talk about was actually the the kinds of sandwiches that people might have brought along to parties in the 80s and the rise of the rise of those sort of disposable snack foods and things that you know and crisps bags of crisps and kit kats and things coming along um interesting about interesting to think about what lockdown did to food in street parties as well you know and rather than people having sharing platters uh people would have would eat much more individually so possibly finger food that you wouldn't need to to sort of share plates uh and things but that's to sort of take us on a completely historical uh tangent i think <laughs> but it, interesting like- nonetheless it my fetishism with uh with food uh, rearing its head again.
1: Yeah, I'm just reading about this Cordon Bleu stuff, though, so I didn't really know anything about this. So I, I obviously know the name, but I don't know what it is. But it's an international network of hospitality and culinary schools teaching French haute cuisine. And um, it was established in 1895. Unbelievable. So by the 50s, that was, um, you know, that's the real deal. And there wasn't any uh, anything, you know, like that at all. So if you wanted to have something slightly exotic or in any way exotic at all... Um, then, then French is what what you got.
0: Interesting. yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm super excited at the moment because I checked my phone this morning and EasyJet informed me that I am flying to the south of France in 23 days, where I am staying in a with a with a resident Cordon Bleu chef. That's <laughs> so good. yes, so um, yeah. It's been a it's been a busy year for us historians. We historians, and it's it's time to. Um, Time to relax and unwind and eat decent French food, I think.
1: Well, do you know what he'll be able to cook you or make you? A salad, which is like a salad, but nice.
0: <laughs> I, I'm expecting much better than that. Oh, well, still, I'm always impressed with French salads. Um, OK,
1: I'm going to talk a little bit about um, what, what happens with your streets when you, um, when, when you all live in tower blocks. Uh, it's oh. actually it linked to what was going on earlier about the need to have a street. So I talked about the need to have a street. So this is after second World War, assuming your street hasn't been bombed. Um, but then they start building upwards in inner cities. And uh, one of the most intriguing places to talk about in terms of this is somewhere called Park Hill, which is in Sheffield. It is the largest listed building in Europe. It's a kind of huge, brutalist, concrete beast of a building. And it was built in the 60s, Um, According to a kind of crazy utopian vision, what they wanted to do was to maintain the uh, camaraderie, the sort of local community that you got in a street, um, but when applied to tower blocks. So some of the earliest tower blocks didn't have any of this sense of camaraderie or anything at all. And what they cooked up was this idea they called streets in the air and um, Park Hill in Sheffield was the first one. Um, and instead of having this usual, a, a small balcony about four feet across, which gives you access to your front door, you have these two huge 12 foot wide decks. They're called street decks um, on every third floor. They're open to the air. They're wide enough uh, for tricycles, for small electric vehicles, um, um, you know, sort of milk milk was delivered along them like a proper street and there were bridges connecting the different blocks um and uh, here here's a description here um this is what what it was before from john rennie the, the sheffield's medical officer of health the dwelling houses in that area are by reason of disrepair or sanitary defects unfit for human habitation, or are by reason of their bad arrangement, or the narrowness or bad arrangement of the streets, dangerous or injurious to the health of the inhabitants of the area, and that the other buildings in the area are for a like reason dangerous or injurious to the health of the said inhabitants, and that the most satisfactory method of dealing with the conditions in the area is the demolish- demolition of all the buildings in that area. So that was what was there before. Then they're replaced by these uh, extraordinary invention of the streets in the sky. But it doesn't quite work. This is uh, one of the interesting problems with it. So you've got parents, they feel like they're unable to keep an eye on their kids uh, because the playgrounds are so many floors down below. Other older people particularly feeling isolated. The lifts didn't always work, so they felt more isolated. They couldn't go up and down the stairs. Um, the lifts themselves could be quite unpleasant. They ended up being used as toilets, uh, particularly at the weekends. Um, so they had to be swilled by a resident uh, caretaker. The uh, the walkways and the stairwells that weren't part of these main streets became very secluded, an opportunity for crime and antisocial behaviour. Um, and the high balconies themselves... Uh, basically led to people to throw rubbish off the top of them and other items. Um, in the late 70s, a child was actually killed by a TV set being thrown from one of the flats. The, the highest platforms as well uh, tended to attract suicides. So the, the the sort of utopian vision of these wonderful streets in the sky, by no means did that work at all. Um, it's interesting that this uh, this building still exists and actually it's kind of seems to have found um, a new lease of life. They spent an absolute fortune um, regenerating the area, refurbishing it. uh, And it seems to have found a new lease of life, particularly because of a large number of students who've who've moved in um, to turn it into student accommodation. So I thought that was interesting, James. A a failed attempt at recreating the the community um, of the proper streets and putting them in the sky and how that didn't work in the 1960s.
0: No, I, I thought you were going to go in a completely different direction. I thought you were going to talk about the cleaning up after street parties. Oh, no. I thought that was a, a particular Sam Willis sort of uh, <laughs> approach to it, particularly as you'd described me as the dustman of, of <laughs> history. The, the janitor. Janitor, cleaning up the detritus. Well, I want to end with American st- block parties. And when I when I was a prof in... The United States uh, in the town where I was where I worked we had this sort of main street which had all the big fraternity houses on it and in the summer there would be sort of you know these sort of block parties uh, you weren't actually allowed to step on the sidewalk or the pavement uh, with an alcohol but so long as you were on the the land in the garden of these properties you were fine and you wouldn't get Uh, find for for drinking in public um but anyway this is this is quite a thing in america and i did a little uh research on this and came across uh the most extraordinary uh street block party the mifflin block party that is still going today and it's in madison wisconsin which is a super uh american city super university and it is celebrated now um to the original date was the the third of May, but it's it's around that time, and it's basically very much a sociable thing now. Dancing, drink, and it's really to celebrate the end of exams. So it's really about sort of young people to getting getting together. But it has this really interesting past, and it began in nineteen sixty nine um, as a street protest at the time of the Vietnam War, and it involved, you know, they wanted to dance, and the date the 3rd of May was supposed to coincide with the anniversary of the French student rebellions. It's very anti-war in sentiment. Um, You've got to think that Madison has a history of of this kind of protest. So in 1967 there was a protest against the Dow Chemical uh, Company and Dow Chemicals were famous for because they were the company that made napalm that was shipped off to Vietnam and caused all sorts of atrocities there and these pictures were coming back to the American public and a lot of people protested against them. Um, thousands of students occupied and um, you know, one of the, the local halls. And so this this event sort of starts off uh, in this particular part of, of Madison uh, around the Mifflin area, uh, which is an area where, you know, you can define it as a very... Countercultural community, so it's full of students and and basically, you know, people who are seen as hangers-on in society. So people, this is the sort of free love movement, experimentation with drugs, blah 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 blah, all that kind of thing. So very much, it's a it's a place where there is a cultural revolt. There's radical politics. There's social protest. And in the the spring of 1969, people want to get together and start planning a you know, what is going to be an event. Uh, and the authorities worry that it might get out of hand. There are attempts to make it formal. Um, and But actually, you know, they're allowed to... Um, to meet and to you know and so long as you so long as you are in your own block and you have it as a block party you put barricades up around it then you're absolutely fine you don't need a permit for it and things can go ahead um there are adverts put in or there's a notice put in one of the local newspapers um which i thought was really interesting sort of you know um saying um it's a notice in the Daily Cardinal about a week or so before, uh, which says, "Why don't we do it in the road?" Question mark. Four PM until dot 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 dot. Four hundred um, uh, block West Mifflin. Be there. Off the piggy. Roll your own reality. Bring, share food, fun, drums, dogs, and you can imagine what is gonna, what's gonna, um, what's gonna come. The the local chief of police, uh, Emery. Uh, sees it as something that is contrary to policy and what occurs is a basically a three-day rolling battle between the students and the people in that area and the police and it starts as a gathering uh, in 500 block off west mifflin uh early on the saturday afternoon there are bands there they're on porches people are sort of hanging out playing games dancing until around 4:30, when a, a police car comes up and it orders over a loud speaker to, for the crowd to disperse, and the crowd don't want to do that. They want to stay, they want to have fun. The police then turn up in huge numbers dressed in riot gear to break everything up, start pushing people. Officers line up on the kerb, so there's all sorts of, of violence. They have. They start dispersing people with tear gas. It spreads into... Uh, onto state street it's over three nights rocks are thrown all sorts of violence come out um and there are in the capital times the local newspaper um there are uh, some reported scenes of violence which include on saturday night um, um madison bureau chief uh, watched as policeman uh, separated from as a policeman was separated from his group and pulled his revolver at students who had him cornered For example, uh, there's a national correspondent for the Associated Press who reports observing nightsticks coming down on the bodies of male students trapped by policemen inside 16 North Bassett Street after students had yelled at the police. Um, A frightened, another one, frightened um, Dayton Street residents threatened students with what they thought was a shotgun um takeover reported the following tactics. Students with baseball bats ambushing police who were chasing people between buildings and as the battle grew um police came to rely more and more on tear gas to get rid of the crowds. So there's a real sort of you know, real tension there. There's a very strong mayor, Mayor Duke, uh in in control of the city at this time. University officials and the mayor uh try and try and reason with the with the students, try and tell them that they can come on to university property and hold their dance there. They try to encourage them to elect leaders uh, and so that they can have people that can they can negotiate with. Uh, eventually, it, it, it all sort of calms down, disperses, but a lot of people are injured. And It's an event that has continued on, and as far as I know, it still continues uh, to this very day. Um, But there we are, Sam, a a sort of a very different kind of street party, a street party of protest, which is very different from the kinds of street parties that we were talking about connected to the Jubilee, where it is all about getting together. It's about healing. It's about community spirit and building that kind of um, that sort of camaraderie with your with your with your neighbors
1: fantastic stuff um, really really interesting what a wonderful topic we have come across here James
0: who'd have thought it? it's
1: uh, amazing I haven't even talked about um, sound systems and them being imported from uh, from Jamaica which is why you end up with things like the Notting Hill Carnival and really really Ooh. loud music and a proper fun party none of this sitting around having and stuff you just smoke a lot of weed drink a lot of lager and do a lot of dancing fantastic um Guys, we are doing bunting next um, and uh, hopefully you will enjoy that. Now, if you want to find out what we're all up to, do please follow me on Twitter at Dr Sam Willis. And um, if you're interested in maritime and naval history, do please listen to my other podcast,
0: the Mariner's Mirror podcast, which is brilliant. And you can follow me on social media at James Daybell on Twitter. Uh, You can follow Unexpected Podcast at Unexpected Pod on Twitter. We are also on Instagram and Facebook, so come and check us out there. Also, check out our uh, website, historiesoftheunexpected.com, for all our back episodes. There are about 350 or so of them. Uh, I was listening to one the other day on Pockets. And it's a good one. It's a it's good a one. Really, it's a I think it's one of our best. I don't normally sort of listen to our, our podcast because it's a little bit sort of egotistical. Um, but actually, if, if I just forgot that it was, I forgot it was us two talking. And I, it was delightful. <laughs> Uh, your children in it. It was a snow day. It was amazing. Um but should you should you wish to to support us and become a patron of Histories of the Unexpected, uh do head over to patreon.com where we have our own page and you can become a you can become a king or queen or, or whatever uh, in supporting us. But meanwhile, thank you for listening and take care and enjoy this beautiful weather that we seem to be having at the moment.
1: That's it for now guys. Cheerio, Bye-bye. bye bye. Bye.